You are listening to Monument Lab Future Memory, where we discuss the future of monuments and the state of public memory in the U.S. and across the globe. You can support the work of Monument Lab by visiting monumentlab.com, following us on social at monument underscore lab, or subscribing to this podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Our guest today on Future Memory is artist, scholar, and composer Nathan Young. Young is a member of the Delaware Tribe of Indians and a direct descendant of the Pawnee Nation and Kiowa Tribe, currently living in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. His work incorporates sound, video, documentary, animation, installation, socially engaged art, and experimental and improvised music. Young is also a founding member of the artist collective Post Commodity. He holds an MFA in Music, Sound, from Bard College's Milton Avery School of the Arts and is currently pursuing a Ph.D. in the University of Oklahoma's Innovative Native American Art History doctoral program. His scholarship focused on indigenous sonic agency. Today we discuss his art and practice and a recently opened public art project at historic site Pensbury Manor, entitled Quilunaman, funded by the Pew Center of Arts and Heritage and curated by Ryan Strand Greenberg and Theo Loftus. Let's listen. So welcome to another episode of Future Memory. I'm your co-host, Lee Sumter, and today my guest is Nathan Young. Welcome, Nathan. Hello, thank you. It's nice to be here with you today. Future Memory is the name of Monument Lab's podcast. In the context of your own work, when you hear the words future memory, what does that mean to you? Do any images or sounds come to mind? They really do. There's one, it was a website of a sound artist, a writer, an educator, Jace Clayton, DJ slash Rupture, had a mix CD called uh, Gold Tea Thief. And I remember uh, it was kind of a, game changer and uh you know in the late 90s and uh i got that uh recorded that mixed cd from a website called history of the future that's very close it's very close it, and it's always stuck with me and i'm fortunate enough to be able to grapple with a lot of these kind of ideas I, i'm not really quite sure how i feel about some of you know the history of the future because in some ways I work with in many different archives. Mm-hmm. So I am dealing with people's future or thinking about or reimagining or, or just imagining their future. But future monuments are something that uh, I grapple with and deeply consider in my artwork. I think it's one of the more challenging subjects today in, in art. And, you know, uh, I think we see that with the taking down of monuments that were so controversial or are, are so controversial. Right. But uh, I find it fascinating with the idea of finding new forms to make monuments to, mm-hmm. to remember and the idea of working with different communities of memory. Um, it's, it's key to my work. It's just a, a lot of listening and a lot of pondering and, and, Actually, you know, it's a very productive space for me because it's a place to think about form. It's also, you know, it opens doors for me just to think about the future. And and I, and I will say this, that one problem that, you know, often arises as a Lenape, Delaware, Pawnee, Kiowa person 
is we're often talking about the past. Mm-hmm. And I really like to talk about the future and to work with organizations that are thinking about the future. Right. I can relate to that. I think it's a misunderstanding. We always really are talking about the future. And I've had the great fortune to be around some people. Actually, I grew up in the capital of the Cherokee Nation, Oklahoma. A lot of people know that Oklahoma is the home to 39 federally recognized tribes. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in Tahlequah, which is the capital of the Cherokee Nation, Mm -hmm. and was able to be around a a well-known and respected medicine man named Croslin Smith, also an author. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, being a part of an interview with Croslin, and I grew up, he was a family friend. And uh, he said, you know, I'm often asked about the old or ancient ways and the new ways. And what Croslin said was, and I will try my best to to articulate this idea, is that there is no difference between the ancient ways and today. These things still exist. It might be an illusion or, or we might not be able to comprehend or understand it. But the, there is no difference between the ancient when we're thinking of things in, in the sense of the sublime, I think. Mm. There is no difference between the ancient and, and, and what is contemporary. Uh, that, that was a really important moment for me Yeah, as an adult to hear him articulate that uh, was really important. And so it's uh, I think about that. And um, I'm not really uh, sure about a lot of things, but I really like to think about that when I'm uh, working. Right. It kind of runs through your mind as you're working and creating. It's a deep thought, that's for sure, connecting those things. And even thinking back on your own personal history with sound, when did you first connect your relationship to place and homeland to sound and music? Well, my earliest remembrances of of music, honestly, are my dad driving me around in his truck, picking me up after school and singing peyote songs. Mm. Native American church songs, peyote songs. We call that, the members of the Native American church call that medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was an active member of the of a chapter of the Native American church at that time. And I was fortunate enough to receive my uh, Lenape Delaware name in a peyote meeting. But I, the first things I remember are the music he played in the car, but really the singing in the car, the singing in the truck. Mm-hmm. that he would do of those peyote songs. And even after he quit going to meetings or he wasn't active in the Native American church anymore, uh, he still would sing these peyote songs. And I would ask him about the peyote songs and uh, because they're different for every tribe. We all have kind of, the forms are, they still have their kind of conventions, but they're very, you know, uh, tribally specific, you know, and everything in in uh, what we call legally Indian country here in, in the United States is, you know, super hyper local. So um, just down the road, that's really the beautiful thing about living in Oklahoma is um, you have uh, people whose ancestors are from Northeast, Mm -hmm. uh, Southeast, Southwest. There is only one tribe here from California. So, yeah, it's a really rich place for sound and song. Uh, Both of my parents are uh, indigenous American Indian. My mother is uh, Pawnee and Kiowa. My father is uh, Lenape, Delaware. Mm -hmm. And so I also grew up around uh, the big drum, what we call the big drum, at powwows. I never became a powwow singer or anything like that. Never learned anything around the big drum, but I did eventually learn Pawnee songs, Native American church Pawnee songs. But really, I mean, I was 
just a, a kid in a small town in Oklahoma and when skateboarding hit and, <laughs> you know, you become kind of a, you know, an adolescent, you know, you start to discover, you know, punk rock and, and things like that. And those to me were the way that the culture was imported to me. Mm-hmm. I I didn't know. I mean, I didn't realize that I was already surrounded by all this beautiful culture that, you know, this all the tribes and my parents' tribes and and my my grandparents and right. But then it was like a transmitter. You know, even these tapes were just like transmitters to me. <laughs> and, and so um those were really important also. And one other thing I remember, I have a lot of thoughts about sound. Another yeah. thing I remember is my, my father often would um get onto us or make fun of us for being so loud. <laughs> and saying we would be horrible scouts or, or hunters or right making too much noise <laughs> native americans yeah yeah we don't we weren't stealth you right. know we were just you could hear us coming a mile away and so and he would always say you would you wouldn't be a very good one you know just to try to get us to quiet down so no one wants to be a bad hunter right can you break down the concept of indigenous sonic agency is this based on ancestral traditions, your artistic practice, academic scholarship, or maybe a bit of all of the above? Well, Indigenous Sonic Agency is really one piece of a larger subject, Sonic Agency, which I encountered in a book titled Sonic Agency by Brandon LaBelle. And I was a former member of this collective post-commodity and I'm reading this book, and when we were first starting the collective, we had the opportunity to work with this Czech poet named Magor, Ivan Euros Magor, means blockhead, I believe. <laughs> it's a nickname. But he was kind of described as the Andy Warhol of the plastic people of the universe. He was an art historian. He uh, spent most of his life in prison just for being an artist, an art historian. He was an actual musician. He didn't play with it the plastic people in the universe, to my knowledge, but he did write the lyrics, to my knowledge. <laughs> and we had the opportunity to record with Magor. So I'm reading this book about Sonic Agency, and here I find, you know, somebody that I'd actually had an experience with Sonic Agency with, you know, mm-hmm. in my early days and as a young man and an artist. But ultimately, Indigenous Sonic Agency is in some sense similar but different to tribal sovereignty. And so when, when you think of agency or sovereignty, it's something that they sometimes get mixed up. And I'm really trying to, to parse the differences between this, what we understand so well as political sovereignty, as, a, as federally recognized tribes, mm-hmm. and what agency means, like, say, as an artist. But in my research in the subject, of sonic agency and indigenous sonic agency, it encompasses pretty much everything. And that's what I love about sound. Everything has a sound, whether we can hear it or not. Everything is is in vibration. There are sounds that that are inaudible to us, that are too high or too low. And then there's what we hear, you know, in the world. And uh, the importance of uh, silence with John Cage. And I think that they're just super productive. I was introduced really to sound studies uh, through this book called Sonic Warfare by Steve Goodman. It was really about how the study of sound was, in a sense, still emerging because it had mostly been 
used for military purposes and for proprietary purposes, uh, such as commercials and things like that. As I stated earlier, my I felt like music was my connection to a larger world that I couldn't access mm-hmm. living in a small town. So even the, everything that came with it, the album covers, all that, they really uh, made an impression on me as, as a young person. And it continues to this day. And I'm focusing deeply on it. But uh, my studies in Sonic Agency, Indigenous Sonic Agency, encompass everything from social song sacred song, voice, uh, just uh, political speech and language, political language. And uh, there's so much work to be done in this emerging sound studies field. I felt that indigenous sonic agency, there was a gap there in in, in writing and, and knowledge on it. Now, uh, though I would acknowledge that there has been great study on the subject, such as Dylan Robinson's book, uh, Hungry Listening. And um, I am fortunate enough to be around a lot of other indigenous experimental artists who work in, you know, the fields and all in all the sonic fields. So it's an all encompassing thing. I think about the sacred, I think about the political, I think about, uh, you know, uh, the nature of, you know, how we use it to organize things and how language works and silence is a part of it. Also, listening is very important. It's something that I was, you know, taught at a very young age. And you always have to continue to hone that practice to become a better and better listener. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, my grandmother was very quiet. and mm-hmm. uh, But whenever she did talk, everybody loved it. That's right. So. That's right. So let's talk about the Pensbury Manor Project. Can you share how you, Ryan Strand Greenberg, and Theo Loftus met and how Quilunaman came to be? Well, my recollection, uh, I try to keep busy around here, and, and oftentimes means traveling to some of the other towns in the area, such as Pawnee or Bartlesville or Dewey or Tahlequah, and I wasn't able to do a studio visit with Ryan, but I wanted to see his artist talk that he was giving at the Tulsa Artist Fellowship, which I was a fellow at at mm-hmm. that time. And I remember seeing these large public art projects that were um, being imagined by Ryan and uh, we had worked on some other projects that, for one reason or another, we, we weren't able to get off the ground. But eventually, uh, Pinsbury Manor was uh, willing to kind of be this space where we could all work together. I remember rushing back and being able to catch Ryan's artist talk. And then, right before he left town, we had a studio visit and found out how much, you know. We had in common concerning the legacy of the Lenape in uh, Philadelphia area and uh, what we used to call Lenape Hoking. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, really uh, a moment of good fortune, I believe. So Monument Lab defines monument as a statement of power and presence in public. The Quilunaman Project Guide describes Pensbury Manor as a space to attune public memory. And it goes on to say that sites like these are not endpoints in history, but touchstones between generations. And I really love that statement. Do you think Pensbury Manor and the land it stands on, do you consider it a monument in your eyes? Why or maybe why not? Well, yeah, I would definitely consider Pensbury Manor, in a sense, a monument. Um, I think that we could make an argument for that. If we were talking about the nature of it being William Penn's home, 
and uh, it being reconstructed in the 20th century, you could make a very strong argument that it is a monument to William Penn. And also as William Penn, as this ideal friend to the Indian, as you know, to use some people don't like that word here in Oklahoma. Some of us use it technically it was his Indian country legally. So, but I use all terms, Native American, Indigenous, mm-hmm. Indian. So, uh, but I'd mostly like to just be called a, a, De- a Lenape, Delaware, Pawnee, you know, kind right. But um, I definitely would say that you could make an argument that it is, it is a, a monument to William Penn, especially as part of that is this ideal colonist who was uh, kind of could be uh, set a standard as for how he worked with the Lenape and then other tribes in the area at the time. I think that's kind of the narrative that I, I run into mostly when in my research, literally. However, I, I would not say that it was established or has had been a, any type of monument to my Lenape legacy. I, I don't I, I did I did not feel that that I mean there was mention, there was, you know, there was always mention of that. Like I said, it was as this ideal a figure of a, you know, how to cooperate with uh the tribes in the area. But it was definitely I would definitely say it's not a monument to the Lenape or the Delaware or, or Muncie. Can you share a little bit more about the project itself in terms of Quilunaman? What exactly you did there at Pensbury Manor to kind of shift and inform that history from a different perspective? Well, first of all, at Pensbury Manor, I was given a lot of agency. I was given a lot of freedom to do what, what I needed to as an artist. And I, I was really fortunate to be able to work with Doug and Ryan and Theo in that manner, where I could really think about these things and think deeply about them. And I started to, to uh, consider uh, these living history sites. My understanding is that they're anachronisms. You know, there's a lot of labor put into creating a kind of facade or a, an appearance of the past. And specifically this time, this four years that William Penn was on this continent. So this idea that nothing is here that is not supposed to be here became really important to me. And what I mean by that is, say, if you threw in a television set, it kind of throws everything off, right? right? Everybody's walking around in in clothing that reflects that era and and that time. Uh, If you throw some strange electronics in the space, it it kind of is is disruptive. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel uh, the need to do anything uh, like that. I I felt that the, one of the great things about working in sound and one of the most powerful things about sound is, is that sound can also be stealth. You can't see sound, you know, or we can sonify things or we can like visualize it or quantify it in different ways. But to me, this challenge of kind of letting the place be but using sound as this kind of stealth element where I could express, you know, this very, very difficult subject and something that that really nobody has, has any answers to or, you know, is, is sure about. I mean, this is, I'm just trained as an art historian, and uh, I know that we're only making guesses and approximations just like any doctor's. We are just trying to do these things. 
but uh, sound it gave me the ability at uh, at Pinsbury Manor and, and Quilunamen to work, you know, uh, stealthy and quiet, you know, you know, to 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 not disturb the space too much, because there's important work that's done there, and I, I want to respect people's labor. As a member of the Delaware Tribe of Indians of Lenape, I felt that it was a great opportunity to be the person who's able to talk about this very difficult subject. And that is not lost on me. That's a very, very heavy, very serious task. Yeah, big responsibility, yes. Yes, it is not lost on me at all that how serious it is. And mm-hmm. I, I feel very fortunate. And I think without uh, such a, a great support system in place, it wouldn't have been possible. Right. Quilunama means lonesome, such as the sound of a drum. So we have a thing called the... Uh, Lenape Talking Dictionary. No, I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. So on there, I'm often, you know, listening to uh, Nordine Thompson, you know, who gave me my Delaware name, uh, my Lenape name, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Unami Lenape name, and uh, in a peyote ceremony. So I often go there to access Delaware thought and ideas and, and to hear Delaware voices and Delaware language being spoken. Uh, I know that it's some people have different views on it, but say, I think artists and people have used the Unami Lenape before in art uh, exhibitions as lost or in endangered languages. Um, I know that there's uh, this in the entire state that I live in and in most of Indian country, there's a great language revitalization movement that I was fortunate to be a part of and contribute to. And really, that's where I discovered that that's really where, through language, there is nothing more, you know, uh, Lenape, there's nothing more Delaware, you know, that Lenape, Unami Lenape, than to be able to talk and express yourself in that manner, or say as a Pawnee or a Kiowa, to be able to talk and express embedded in those words are, 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 are much more than just how we think of of language it's 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 they're really the key to our our worldviews our languages are the keys to our worldview and our um uh, really our thought patterns and how we see the world and how we should treat each other and um, or how we choose to live in, in the world and or, or our ancestors did so i'm fascinated by the language and i was fortunate enough to be around many many different native languages growing up. Mm-hmm. But ours was one because of the nature of us being a Northeastern tribe that as, uh, was very much in danger of being lost. And, and some would say that at one point it was a very, very, very endangered language to the point to where nobody was being born in a, what we call a first uh, language household um, where everybody could speak you know, conversationally in Unami. These things, we we all think about this, by the way. All of my community, the Delaware Tribe of Indians, was fortunate enough to serve on the tribal councils as an elected member for four years. We think about these things definitely, like all the time. And, and, and people do hard work to try to uh, revitalize the language. And I know at this time that the Delaware Tribe of Indians is, is actively working to revitalize our, our language. And that's a part of that preservation and, and remembrance because your work really does explore this idea of ancestral remembrance and is rooted in that. And then again, you're also engaging with these historic sites like Pensbury Manor that tap into public memory. So in your thoughts, 
How are ancestral remembrance and public memory connected? Are there any similar ways that they resonate? Well, I think of different communities of remembrance within this idea of memory. There are just different communities and say, I I don't want to to create a dichotomy, but it's easily understood by those who, uh, you know, focus on the, the legacy of William Penn and those who focus on the legacy of the Lenape or the Pawnee. But um, ancestral memory is key to my culture, I believe. And I really don't know any way to express it other than explaining it in a contemporary sense. Mm -hmm. And that one of the first things, if you're deeply involved in your tribal nation, one of the one things that, that people will ask you is they'll say, who are your folks? It's literally what people will say. They'll say, who, who are your folks? Right, like who are your peoples, right? What yeah. family do you come from? Right. And so I didn't start to realize this until I was, you know, an, an, an adult, of course. It's kind of not something you think you would ever think of as a child or anything. Mm-hmm. But it started to become really apparent to me that we're families that make up communities that have stayed together, in our case, for hundreds of years across thousands of miles. even. You know, it's a point to where we got down to very small numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still stuck together. We've, and then also there was also a diaspora of Lenape that went to Canada, the Muncie and the Stockbridge, and and there was the Delaware Nation who has actually lived more near the Kiowa, who my grandmother was Kiowa, but the, we still had the same family names. For instance, you know, there are people. And members of the Delaware Nation that are actually blood related to the Delaware tribe. Mm-hmm. And so that is really our connection to each other is our ancestors. I mean, that's that's purely what binds us together is that our ancestors were together and we just continue that bond. A part of Monument Lab's mission is to illuminate how symbols are connected to systems of power and public memory. What are the recurring or even the most vital symbols illuminated in your work? Oh, that's a that's a really tough question because my, my work is all over the place. I, I work across a lot of different mediums. Although I, I've trained, you know, as, a, like as an art historian, so I came into this as a visual artist. Right. I was just happened to be a musician, and then you know discovered installation art and how sound works in, in art. But for me, the story I feel that I'm trying to tell cannot be held by any number of symbols or signs. I want to give myself the freedom and agency to use whatever is needed, actually, whatever is needed to get across the idea that is important to me. And so going back to Quilunaman, you know, lonesome, such as the sound, these colors, we use these white post-colonial benches, and there's four large ones, placed across the grounds of Pinsbury Manor. And you'll see that if one were to visit, they would see a, a black bench, a yellow bench, a white bench, and a red bench. If you're from my community, a Delaware Tribe of Indian member, and you're, you know that you're in a Lenape, you understand that those colors have meaning right. to our tribe. Right. And you will know that those colors have sacred meaning. Mm-hmm. So I, in some sense, I will use whatever I think is the most appropriate way to use it also. You know, I, I, you, I, I want to give myself the freedom to use any type of symbolism, 
I love growing up with my mother and my grandmother, uh, being able to go to powwows and and say, well, here comes the Shawnee women. Here comes the Delaware women. They right. dress like this. Here comes, you know, here comes. You can the, recognize from their dress. Yeah. I, my mother and my mother and my grandmother taught me that, that mm-hmm. iconography of our clothing, you know, or what we now call regalia. I was curious if perhaps the drum or even this idea of homeland show up in your work. Oh, they definitely show up in my work when when appropriate. But rather than a drum, I would say sound or song or mm-hmm. music. And we do have, you know, these iconographies and symbols um, that are deeply meaningful to us. And and I often use those in my, my artwork. But really the question for me is, is how to use them appropriately. And also at the same time, expand the use of these things pr- appropriately. It's just being accountable to your legacy and your community in a sense, and not crossing these boundaries, but still at the same time, you know, kind of pushing form, pushing the edge. I mean, I'm a contemporary person. We're all contemporary people. Right. We want to add something, you know, we want to, we want to contribute. We want to be useful. So I'm searching for symbols and forms all the time, different ones. Right. And uh, whether it be a, a mound, uh, whether it be a swimming pool inside of an art gallery or a a singing uh, park bench uh, or a post-colonial bench in Pensbury Manor. In some ways, you could say I would be, you know, indigenizing and musicalizing those those benches. Uh, But I consciously work to have a very broad palette. I want my work to be expansive and be able to encompass any any subject or idea, because that's why I got into art. Right. Because we you can talk about anything. Yeah, it's boundless, it's boundless. But then also thinking about the connections, you know, and the symbols that you mentioned, the colors that you mentioned, the iconography, what systems of power might they be connected to? Well, ultimately, I think that most of the power that is embedded in these symbols is, comes from the sublime. That come from the sacred, mm-hmm. and and you know it's complicated. It's uh, uh you know the sacred means to not be touched. Mm-hmm. You know it's that's my understanding is to not be touched. And uh, however, it's been the source of inspiration for artists of any continent of any time. Is if you want to call it a spiritual, sublime, religious connection, inspiration, whatever. But ultimately, that is my understanding. And from my research, even as a young person, as studying Pawnee mythologies at the University of Oklahoma and special collections and learning stories of our origin stories and and how what color meant and and how the world was seen by my ancestors from other tribes uh, and, and as well as, you know, Lenape stories. It's something that's hard to grasp and to 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 hold on to, but we that's how we've come to identify each other. And it's as simple as we have car tags here that represent our tribes. We have <laughs> we have compact with the state. So everybody's looking around at all these different car tags. Wow. You see a regular Oklahoma one. Right. And then you'll see a very common one is a Cherokee because they're one of the biggest tribes. Right. And you'll see a blue one, it's Pawnee. And now you'll see a, a red one, and it's Delaware or Lenape. And it says Lenny Lenape on it and has our seal. Okay. So we play this kind of game, all of us. And I, I mean, we don't really, it's not a game, but we're always, 
looking at license plates to see, you know, and it might be uh, your mom's car you're driving that has, you know, say a Kickapoo license plate or something, <laughs> and it's a Cherokee driving it or, or a non-Indian or something. So um, relative, you know, say, uh, but uh, it's not for me to say where these came from. It's something that I actually just really explore. Right. And uh, that fascinates me. It's very rich growing up and being a member of my tribal communities. I, I I learned something new almost daily. I can imagine, too, like you said, the, the learning experience that you have as a child growing up in your community. You mentioned mythologies earlier, and I study mythology, and one of the purposes I've come to understand is education, educating through these stories. I recently interviewed Jesse Hagopian from the Zen Education Project and the Movement for Anti-Racist Education. And the struggles for education reform and reckoning with Eurocentric understandings of history seem to be deeply connected efforts. So on Quilunaman, I understand an educational curriculum has been developed for younger audiences. What do you hope that people take away from this project and that they might not find in a textbook or a classroom? Well, I would hope that when people visit the large-scale sound installation and and visual elements of it, that they would understand my greatest hope that people would learn what I learned while creating the work was that I really don't know what it felt like. You know, I just came across, I was looking for the words in the Delaware Talking Dictionary, you know, for feelings. And I found a sentence or a way of saying feeling that said, it did not penetrate me. You know, I did not feel it. And it made me realize that I don't know. I've never had this happen to me. But the history of the Delaware Lenape is of constant removal, of constant pushing. Most people know the Cherokee Nation and the Trail of Tears. Mm -hmm. This one, actually, there were many movements of the Cherokee. It's very complex. All tribes are very complex. You always have to qualify. Right. But the Trail of Tears is what most people know about. And it was this very long two-year complex journey. It was fraught. That's one of the stories that we learned in school, if at all, right? Right. And so our story is of nine of those. And to my understanding and research, it was about once every 30 years. Mm. So it seemed to me that most Lenape who came to be known as the Delaware tribe, who I grew up with as, had ancestors that had experienced a removal. It's something that we still live and deal with today. We came to Oklahoma from what is now Lawrence, Kansas, when this was called Indian Territory. And we had been living uh, before that north of Kansas and had, you know, adapted our way of life as we changed across this territory and through time to survive. Mm -hmm. And so as we moved into the plains, we started to hunt buffalo and then get kind of uh, crosswise with some other tribes. And I think when the federal government was constituting Indian country, they were concerned with the relationships between other tribes and how they felt. My understanding is we had upset some by buffalo hunting and adopting that way of survival and life. There was some trepidation about us. They wanted our reservation, 
in uh, the railroad wanted a reservation in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, to run directly through our our reservation. Mm-hmm. They were forcing us to move off that reservation, and uh, they couldn't find a place. That was kind of my understanding. The situation is, and so we ended up in the northernmost part of the Cherokee Nation, and that's this made us a landless tribe for a long, a very, very long time. Technically, we didn't have a reservation. You know, we were living in the Cherokees reservation because we had this very ancient but kind of tangential connection to the Cherokees. So um, that's a very long and complicated story as well. That's actually a, a beautiful setup for one of my last questions, actually. This idea of documentation and stewardship are key for indigenous communities, as you just mentioned, that continue to contend with stolen land, forced displacements, cultural erasure, and lost languages. Monument Lab thinks a lot about the future archives that can hold the dynamic nature of public memory and all its forms. What would a future archive of ancestral memory look, feel, or even sound like for you? You know, I love that question because we do work with future archives of our ancestors. All of us do today. So I think it's really a question of form. I've encountered, you know, this... In, in my studies of sonic agency and indigenous sonic agency, the, the invention of the phonograph and the wax cylinder are very important. And so what it, it didn't look like anything. It looked like sound or that archive. And I think that unknowingly, we're all living in an archive. We're archiving moments now as things speed up constantly, mm-hmm. you know, Paul Virilio, the, uh, the theorist, was very, very important to my thinking because he theorized about speed and and and, and the, the speed of, say, how a, a camera shutter and a gun are very similar in their repeatingness. And I think about repetition a lot. But today we live in this hyper uh, kind of surveillance society. This any moment could be archived any moment could be filmed and also these things will be lost mm-hmm. and so that is a fascinating thought to think about what what may survive and become the archive you know and what may not even with all of this effort to constantly surveil and document everything but uh it's my hope that archives are important just because they they give us a deeper understanding of a connection to something we will never be able to experience. And so I think that a future archive is something that we cannot imagine, that we don't know what it's going to look like. Mm. And it's up to us to find out and to explore form and explore possibilities so that we're not stuck in this mindset that has to be in steel and monumentalized as a figure or a, a person or, or something like that. So in my mind, it's just to be revealed to us, you know, we'll know later, but I would hope that we work to make, and I know this is what people still do today to make monuments. They want to make something beautiful. But that means something different to a Lenape or a, another a Pawnee or a Kiowa. Sure. You know, so that means that seems very different to us. And so uh, we do that. We do memorialize things in different ways. But I think that we think of them as more ethereal 
Well, yeah, and we think of them as things that we know that aren't going to really last forever. And I, I feel that way, at least. I don't speak for all of my culture, but I, you know, I know that some of us are trying to find new forms to really memorialize our past and kind of unite our community of memory and our, our tribes, our, our, our experiences. Like you said, time, everything's moving so fast and everything's evolving. Everything's constantly changing. So who knows what the forms will take? But this has been such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time. I just wanted to see if you had any final words or even gems of ancestral wisdom you might want to leave with us before we finish. No, I can't share any any ancestral wisdom, not knowingly or very well, but I just appreciate the opportunity to create the piece. I appreciate the opportunity to expand upon the piece by talking with you about this. And because it's, you know, I'm I'm just trying to figure this out. I don't have all the answers. Right. That is part of being a life learner and walking this path, right? Everyone's on their journey. We are constantly learning at every turn. And I'm with you, Nathan. I often admit that I do not have all the answers. That is for sure. But I yeah. really enjoyed learning about your work and your practice. And I definitely plan on getting down to Pensbury Manor. And look forward to the curriculum for the youth when it comes out. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoy it. I, I hope that it's a meaningful experience for you. I'm a very fortunate person to be able to work on such a project and very grateful to the, to the entire team and, and uh, everybody that supported the process. Thank you. And thank you again to Ryan Strand Greenberg, who is also the producer of this podcast and worked with you on the project for Quilunaman. So thank you to Nathan Young, our guest today on Future Memory. This is another one for the Future Memory Archives. Monument Lab Future Memory is produced by Monument Lab Studio, Paul Farber, Lee Sumter, Ryan Strand Greenberg, Aubrey Penny, and Nico Rodriguez. Our producing partner for Future Memory is Radio Kismet, with special thanks to Justin Berger and the Christopher Plant. This season was supported with generous funding by the Stuart Weitzman School of Design and the University of Pennsylvania.